This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, we're going to look ahead to Saturday's fight card, and I'm going to give you the case for why Dustin Poirier could win. We'll do the case for Dan Hooker tomorrow, but then let's get back into the mailbag. We do that every Wednesday. And then last but not least, we're going to weigh in on this Sean O'Malley and Reebok controversy. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays at 1 p.m. East Coast time right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Don't forget about the mailbag, Show at gmail.com. Hi, everybody. Hope you are doing well. Uh, I know I am. Happy to be here on this Wednesday. Excited to hear your questions. And... Um, Start leaning into Saturday's card. Everyone has kind of talked about the main event, which of course is obviously you know really great. But uh, if you've not paid attention to the wider card itself, let me give you just a quick heads up on that, and then I want to I want to make the case for Dustin Poirier if I can. So of course that is your main event, Poirier versus Hooker, and then you got Mike Perry versus Mickey Gall, Brandon Allen, who is one of these like really top prospects coming off of the uh, Contender series. Takes on Kyle Dockhouse, which he's supposed to be another top prospect as well. John Vellante is back against Maurice Green. Violet Bob Ross is back against Kama Worthy. Mara Romero Barella taking on Miranda Maverick. Felipe Lins, Tanner Bosser, Sean Woodson, Kyle Nelson, Takashi Sato, Ramez Brahimaj, I guess. Uh, Jin Yufre finally makes her UFC debut against Kay Hansen. And then Jordan Griffin taking on Yusef Zalal. So some of the names there on the prelim card. Not exactly going to tear your world up. If you're looking at the schedule, so like when the card actually airs, I cannot imagine this is a late night card, but you never really know. So what they're, yeah, main card starts at eight. Oh, thank God. That is a prelim start at five. That is exactly what I wanted to hear. Uh uh-uh, Hold on. My dog's trying to get in the room. All right. So 877-FIGHT-93, 877-344-4893. Let's do this. We have talked, uh, or I've, just, I, I've mentioned rather, the rest of the card, it's pretty good, but I don't want to waste time talking about the rest of the card when there is a crown jewel. Your main event on Saturday is a absolutely sensational contest in the lightweight division. We'll talk about what is at stake, I think, uh, a little bit later through the course of the week. I don't think the answer is a title shot, just to sort of like lessen the debate. But it seems to me that the winner of this fight might be able to make a claim as number one contender or might put themselves in a number one contender fight after this. So I'll think of this as like a semifinal to get to the finals and then the winner of the finals will be your number one contender. Now that assumes that Conor McGregor doesn't just slot in, which in fact he might, but we'll, we'll sort of go over the pieces of that a little bit later. Today I want to focus on the case for Dustin Poirier. Now, as I mentioned, tomorrow we will do the case for Dan Hooker. I'm not doing the case for Dustin thinking that this is the position I am totally advocating for and that I don't see any case for Dan. In any kind of event like this, where you have two very high-level fighters, there is a case to be made for either of them. And we're going to do that just one each day. So if we start with Dustin Poirier today, what can we really say are some of the things he's great at and what conditions need to be in place for him to win. So if we're talking about what he's good at, number one, he's southpaw and he can change stances oftentimes as he uh, closes distance 
or uh, when he's got someone backed up against the fence, he can kind of switch things up a little bit. You saw that in the Max Holloway fight where he would uh, get Max really backed up, switch a little bit, play with it, and then as it moved kind of into more open spaces, um, he would go back to his traditional stance. So he, he, he works predominantly from the southpaw position. He has some of the best boxing in the lightweight division. He is one of the heavier hitters, certainly, in terms of his punching power in that division. And one thing that just really doesn't get enough discussion from what he does is there are two things to his boxing that are really excellent. Number one, he splits your timing really well. Right? So if you're in the middle of something, if you're in between motions, um, if, if, if this, this, people have natural rhythms, and he has a way of disrupting that by finding the middle space, so where you are most vulnerable. He's not the fastest fighter by any stretch. Certainly you would say that Dan Hooker has fought a faster fighter, maybe even in Paul Felder, but certainly Edson Barboza. He's just quicker, not merely with his kicks, but with his punches. He is explosive and quick. I don't think... You can say that Dustin Poirier is that kind of fast, but you don't need to be that fast if your timing is good. If your timing is as primed and sharp as Dustin Poirier's is, you can do a lot with that. So one, his timing is phenomenal. That's both moving, backing up the whole nine, moving forward, I should say, backing up the whole nine yards. Number two, he's got great footwork and he's got really great angles. That's another thing that just doesn't get discussed a lot. Um, he's really good about finding the outside angle and he wants to find the left straight. He's good about moving at different angles off of his jab. Uh, he's constantly in motion. He's L-stepping. He's going side to side. He's rolling underneath. And then as he rolls, he's always finding a lot of outside angles to make a home for that left hand, uh, depending on what the punch might be. I mean, it will come from the left side, but all different kinds. And so that's something that's really, I think, valuable in his boxing. I think the last thing I'd say, I mentioned the two things good about his boxing, but I guess it's probably also worth mentioning a third thing now that I think about it. He does great body work. He consistently applies it. As I mentioned, he hits hard. Uh, he slows a lot of guys down with it. He's not like he's dropping everybody in the world with body shots. He can headhunt a little bit at times. But when he really wants to invest in the body, you know that is something he has shown a propensity, uh, not really a willingness, but a real ability to have fight-affecting uh, consequences when he does. So those are things that really stand out to me. And when you think about like what that might mean for Hooker, now Hooker is a careful, smart guy. He lost the Barboza fight because if you look at it, he just gave Barboza time and space. And the reason why he did that is because I think Hooker likes to operate in the same kind of way. I mean, he likes to press people backwards, but not, not heavily so. I mean, he did it to Iaquinta, uh, but I think Iaquinta was having a real problem with the reach, whereas... Um, Barboza was able to, every time Hooker threw, Barboza was able to either slip or leg kick or slip counter, and he was constantly making him pay for it. So there was this natural distance between them. And plus also, Hooker's got the longer reach with his boxing. He likes to do a little bit of kickboxing work himself. So he was sort of willing more to accommodate it. And I think between the ability to counterfight from Barboza and then the ability to, uh, or the, the, the willingness of Hooker to give space, it was just a bad recipe. So that was one problem. Um, I don't know exactly what that means for Poirier. I mean, if you're asking me like what the context has to be for Poirier to win, we're going to talk about probability's sake, right? I mean, he could just land a shot in the first five seconds and it could be over. But if we're talking about probability's sake, it seems to me that if you look at the reach for 
hooker. It's 75 inches. So he's got a three inch reach on the 72 inch reach of Dustin Poirier. For me, for Dustin to have his best chance at winning, I think is what I would say is he's got to make this fight take place in the range of his his boxing, what they call mid-range. Because it's not like Hooker can't box. And by the way, I mentioned this on Submission Radio yesterday. You know, one thing about both of these guys is they did not necessarily have exemplary chins at 145. At 155, when they are naturally filled out much more, they, are, they have tremendous ability to take a shot. It's, a, it's incredible to watch, actually. So uh, this is not one of those fights that I expect to end very quickly, although you never know. But they both have proven an ability to take a big shot at this weight class. Oh, oh, many of them, in fact. But if, again, if I'm thinking about the context, I think it really has to take place within Dustin's boxing range. He does have some kicks he likes to do. He's got some push kicks. He does have some uh, some leg kicks. I actually think leaning on that a little bit might prove beneficial because the truth is, if you look at the Paul Felder fight, Paul is a very different fighter from Poirier, but he was able to do some things um, that Poirier can borrow, which is push like in the way that people push Edson Barboza back, you're going to have to push Dan Hooker back. And the more you invest in the legs, as Dan Hooker gets tired, so if Dustin can go to the body as he normally does and then can pick up it, pick it up a little bit with the leg kicks, once Hooker begins to slow, if you can press him backwards, he will then accommodate boxing range much more readily. And he's not some chump there. That's not what I'm saying. But if I had to pick who might be better in that range over time, I'm going to say Dustin Poirier is probably going to be better in that range over time. That is the, the place where he is going to have the best success. Now, we'll talk about Hooker tomorrow and why I think that kickboxing range, if he can maintain it, that's going to be a problem for Dustin Poirier. So to me, really, this is going to be about pressuring Hooker backwards. It's going to be about um, finding angles, sticking behind the jab, heavy work to the body, working inside of range. Because if you don't work inside of range, Hooker is really good about people who try to lunge in from punches far away um, or try to close the distance without really setting it up, whether it's Jim Miller, Gilbert Burns, Ally Quinta. A lot of times it's that knee up the middle. When you try to like really punch from far away, he is very gifted at making you pay for it. He can read it quick. He's got good check hooks too. So it's really going to be incumbent upon Poirier to like march him down so that he's not merely moving backwards, but that the space between them, relatively speaking, is within that space. Sticking behind the jab, as I mentioned, body work. I think going to the legs a little bit and then kind of investing. I think it's really going to be about not looking for any kind of home run shot because if he does that from far away or he tries to – one thing that Dustin does is he's very good about throwing one jab – two-punch combinations, even three-punch combinations. He's sort of good about really mindfully knowing when to accumulate punches. And he swarms when he's got someone hurt and they're up against the fence, but that's also where it gets kind of dangerous because then he is really just kind of taking a bit of a risk. And that's a place that Hooker could have some opportunity. So I guess what I'm looking to see from Dustin, what I think could be a great strategy for him, is really taking a round or two to just invest in slowing Hooker down. If you have successfully done that with body work and everything else, um, then really beginning to turn it on a little bit after that, really beginning to, to maybe headhunt more at that point when he is accommodating you into that natural space. So as long as he's not accommodating you, attack where you can, drain him where you can, and then once that has set in, 
really began to dominate that space, sticking behind the jab. He's not like a Muay Thai kind of striker like Paul Felder, much more of an MMA boxer type. The last thing I would say is I don't find this likely, but never dismiss the possibility that Dustin could take this to the ground. Now, maybe he won't try to wrestle him outright, but maybe he might drop him at some point or even Hooker might slip. Dustin Poirier is a black belt in jiu-jitsu. He has a very, very underrated good ground game. And yes, I know, Khabib had his way with him. Okay, well, that's Khabib Nurmagomedov. But uh, I'm not here to say that Hooker's got some trash ground game. Far from it. But you just never know when a guy like that might want to get on top, throw some ground and pound, change things up, confuse if he could Dan Hooker. Because it was something Ally Quinta was trying, but he was trying to get too far away. He was trying it from too far away on Hooker, and it didn't really work. But if you can just get up in his face, march him down, stick behind the jab, moving off of the angles from the jab, going to the body, switching it up, coming upstairs, constantly pushing him backwards, not letting the what is hooker really good at it's like when he begins to chip away at you he begins to see where the where the uh the defensive liabilities are and then he builds on top of it right so he'll find oh that punch landed so i'm going to put something behind it and then another one i'm going to put something behind it then another one and then another one he begins to build on this you really have to disrupt that you have to take that away you have to constantly force him to find um more conventional attacks that will work but come at a greater cost right when you get when you get slowed down and you're inside that boxing range it's the thing you really have to focus on so i tend to think that that's uh he saw that in the in the um barboza fight right when he was sort of hurt and wounded he was willing to just kind of exchange in the middle and he was landing but he was getting landed on more uh, if you just look at the numbers here too by the way i don't even think that um i don't believe that dustin has a po- excuse me i don't believe that dan has a positive striking differential just barely he lands 4.76 strikes per minute. He absorbs 4.67. So he, the, the, the numbers show you he's a little bit more willing to trade. Dustin Poirier doesn't. 5.51 strikes landed per minute, 3.97 absorbed. He has a positive differential over a single integer. He's a lot more selective, not as willing to trade, certainly as he once was. Um, and by the way, almost two takedowns a fight. So keep that in mind as well. That's going to be part of this threat. I think uh, not, not a dual threat, but just enough in there where you can, if you can make Dan Hooker back up, if you can fight him inside your range, and if you can get him thinking about what you're doing rather than letting him set into a rhythm, all easier said than done. But things I think Dustin Poirier is capable of doing with the jab, with the angles, with the body work, potential ground threat, opening up with the leg kicks a little bit more, tricking his way inside off stance switches. Um, and then swarming along the fence line, although a little bit less so that, I think he's got a great chance to win. This week on World of Basketball, Kelly Olynyk and Kevin Pangos, two former Gonzaga stars, joined our show, and Kelly spoke about his love of playing for the Canadian national team. You know, it's an amazing feeling. It's something that I take a lot of pride in. Um, you know, playing for your country, representing your country, and, uh, you know, Canada's done a, you know, a lot for me. So has the United States, you know, giving you opportunities to, to do a lot of things in your life, um, you know, giving you the opportunity to live a great life. And so it's for me, it's kind of a way to give back to my country. New episodes of World of Basketball are available every Thursday on the Sirius XM app, Pandora, and Apple Podcasts. Melta. 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 Melta.
question about MMA, sports, entertainment, or life in general? If people just came to me for the answers, the world would be a better place. Email Luke at LukeThomasShow at gmail.com and get the answers to all those burning questions during the Luke Thomas Show Midweek Mailbag. All right, we are back. Luke Thomas Show, 877-FIGHT-93, 877-344-4893. That is the phone number, but the mailbag is what we're going to get into now. Luke Thomas Show at gmail.com. This is your opportunity, as it always is every week. We do it every Wednesday to steer the show. What do you want to talk about that you didn't get a chance to either call in, we didn't address, maybe you want to go off topic and just do something else? Your opportunity, Luke Thomas Show at gmail.com. All right, Cabaroni, let's get to it first, please. What is the first question in the mailbag? All right, this comes from Adrian from California, who says, Hey, Luke, uh, have you gotten used to Twitter notifications appearing during the fights? I personally hate them more every time. Who in their right mind thought that was a good idea? I have no problem before or after the fight, but during the fight, it takes away from some of the pleasure of watching the fight. We got that one a little bit late there. Um, (laughs) uh, Here's what I would say. I don't like the tweets. I, I don't know if I hate them. I think for some people it's grown on them. And I'm not like, when I say this, I want to be clear about this. I'm only speaking for myself. I'm not like, sometimes I make a criticism of the UFC because I think that they should have a different way of doing things. And it's just my opinion. You know, I'm just sharing it with you. This one I'm saying by virtue of, I don't even know if what I'm saying is actually best for the broadcast. I'm just telling you what I would prefer. And this, and here's what I mean. So I am trying to pay attention to the fight. And if, you, if you've noticed, especially when they're on uh, the ESPN broadcast, less so the pay-per-view, there's just a lot of real estate that's taken up that doesn't allow you to see the action. So a lot of times you can't see their feet because of the camera angle. They'll be like shin or knee up. I don't like that. Then if you're on ESPN, even more is taken up by the ticker at the bottom, like the news ticker. And now they want to add even more space with the tweets. And I understand that like, oh, well, we're not covering the fighters with those tweets and they're not trying to. But to me, it just becomes like an eyesore at some point where you're like, Jesus, do we need to see Do I need to see? what Dingleberry567 thinks about that big punch. I don't mean, I don't really care. You know, I mean, I guess in between rounds, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world or like maybe on occasion or something. It, it just seems a little bit much for me. But, I, you know, listen, I, I don't know if the UFC's done market research. I don't even know if what I'm saying is what other people feel like they need. I, but if you're asking me what I want to see is I want to see the fighters. I want to see their feet move. I want to see how far apart they are. I want to see what they're doing. Uh, to me, that's much more interesting than just real estate being covered. It's like driving down the highway and you're trying to see the scenic background and it's just billboards as far as the eye can see. It's like, I would rather just look at the mountain range than eat at Shoney's when your kids make the honor roll exit 265. Like, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm a lot less interested in that. But that's just me personally. Next. Answer my question! All right, this comes from Jonathan, who says, uh, hey, Luke, uh, in regards to the ranking call sheet debacle, uh, let's ponder a BCS type of ranking system, which incorporates an algorithm for ranking, which could include quality of wins and losses, strengths of schedule, 
finish versus decision versus round, uh, performance bonus, activity, and media rankings. To me, it adds some transparency and can give incentives uh, of what both UFC fans want, and it would probably end the nonsense of a loss in a title fight, relegates you to number one seed. What do you think about that, Luke? Yeah, I mean, you don't need to do all that. I mean, if you want to make up a kind of a ranking or change the criteria and do that, certainly go ahead and let's see what it looks like. It might be great. I'm not even saying it's a bad idea. Here is what has always worked across sports, and I know for a fact it worked in the UFC because years and years and years ago, I was the editor-in-chief of Bloody Elbow, and while I was there, we had something called, at first they were called the BloodyElbow.com Consensus MMA Rankings, and we briefly partnered with USA Today, uh, and when we did, they made us change the name to the, I think it was the SB Nation Consensus MMA Rankings, something like, I can't remember the exact name, but they made us take Bloody Elbow out because USA Today didn't want to be associated with the name, which I've always found very funny uh, and appropriate, but funny for a different reason. In any event, what we did was we basically found a way to take everyone's different type of rankings at that time and just sort of average it. We didn't do it quite in the way that I'm saying, but we sort of weighted it that way. And I always thought you got the best result as a consequence. If you sort of like average out everyone's biases, the common denominators begin to stand out and then crazy placements get undercut. And the reason why I know it was successful was because we got a lot of compliments at the time, not least of which was, you guys know this fighter lawsuit that I've been talking about where all the information came out about fighter pay and blah, 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 like 20% this and 18% that? Okay, well also in that as part of the deposition uh, was some statements by Joe Silva and then emails that he had as well. And in emails, that he was sending around to various other parties inside UFC or other managers or whatever, uh, he would reference those rankings as the best way um, to evaluate talent. He would say, these are the best rankings. He said it explicitly. Uh, And so the uh, plaintiffs have now used that to make various other arguments. So what it tells you is that even inside UFC, they recognized that those were by far the most accurate rankings. And recall, this is at a time when talent was a little bit more dispersed across different organizations. Uh, Some were in Japan, some were in IFL, some were in Elite XC, some might have been in in Strikeforce after that. like It went on in a way where UFC didn't have all of them. But even UFC agreed that they were the best ones. And I've seen this process used in other sports and similar results where it's like when people are consistent, like a guy is number one or a person is number five, they get put there. And when someone is wildly underranked or wildly overranked, it tends to get undercut and closer to something resembling the truth. So turns out if you just average out everyone else's biases, common denominators stand out and craziness gets washed out. That's what I recommend. Next. Message. All right, this comes from Scott in St. Louis, who says, Hey, Luke, love the show, bud. Question regarding fighters getting a call for their very first UFC fight. The problem is that these fighters are dreaming about fighting in the UFC, and nobody can tell them they are not ready because of they say no, who knows when the next call will come in. So the question is, how can a fighter or their manager successfully secure the fighter won't be blacklisted if they know the fighter isn't ready? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't know that it necessarily comes down to that. You know, maybe lie and say they have an injury. You know, I don't. I don't know. Now, in the case like of a lot of these guys, uh, I I'll say okay. There might be one thing that can that can happen, which is that the manager needs to exercise greater discretion 
Because if Dana White is to be believed, and I suspect that he is, part of the reason why this guy was on the matchmaker's radar it was because the manager was letting them know. I mean, the matchmakers kind of have a sense of what's happening on the regional MMA scene, but they're also kind of reliant on managers to tell them, hey, here's who I've got and here's what he's done or she or whatever, and you should pay attention to it. This is, I've never been a manager, so I have no idea if what I'm saying here is doable, but it seems like one of the problems in the pipeline of getting people to the UFC um, before they're ready is one, the manager will like enthusiastically just promote them and then they get there and they realize, you know, whatever the reasons you thought they might be ready, they're not strong enough to support. And then two, the other one is, you know, I, I really believe in getting as much experience on the regional scene as possible. So trying to keep them active, trying to get them, if not double digit fights, I'd say more than seven, you know, eight, nine fights, if you can. Um, try and get them on shows where they're on LFA, right? So they fight on Fight Pass or, you know, they fight in five rounders, right? Just try to be as careful about that as possible. So when the UFC comes to you and they say, hey, who do you got? We could be like, uh, you know, I've got one guy a little bit more mature than the other one. Let's just put him in there ahead. So, the, you know, it's not, it's not like the matchmakers know all the top prospects on the regional scene, some more than others, I'm sure. But they're somewhat reliant on the the managers to tell them what's up you know probably the managers exercising some greater discretion is going to be uh, a key there and I, I realize that's easier said than done i get it because they don't make a lot of money on the regional scene but it, it is just going to be really valuable for them in the long run next answer my question all right this comes from papa r who says hey luke I'm not an avid fan of MMA and only watch when my roommate commandeers the living room TV. So my questions may be simplistic. Can anyone come up with some real outstanding robe and trunk design for these fighters? The stuff Dana White makes, uh, makes them wear has no flair or style. Feels like they need some kind of macho Camacho type of stylist. Also having not been a fan of MMA since they outlawed pinching, biting and crotch kicking in the no holds bar era for safety. Since the men wear cups, do the women wear bra cups? I think the women do wear, I don't know, actually. I, I could have sworn that there was a rule that they had to, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Uh, they might have some kind of protection. But in terms of like the robes and everything, I mean, this is a solvable problem, right? You just can't tell me there aren't creative ideas out there from creative types who have been dying to do this kind of a thing. I mean, you know, you see Tyson Fury coming out, the what he's coming out in, and we know the controversy about Deontay and that big-ass suit that he had. Okay, you don't have to go that far. But if you just let Connor do the things he wanted to do, you saw what he had on, right? It wasn't too crazy, but it was nice. It was great. And all of his cornermen having the old, like, Irish butler, not butler, but uh, bartender kind of look, you know? It was cool, man. Like, you can do stuff like that. It is, they, you know... It's not being uh, avoided because it's too hard of a creative design problem. That's not the issue. The issue is that Dana just doesn't like it. He likes plain. Dana loves buffet food, it appears. I don't know that for a fact, but when it comes to MMA, he loves, he loves um, things that can be repeatable at scale. Ba not buffet food, excuse me, banquet food. Right. Banquet food can never be good. It's not possible. 
it can be okay. But the reason why it can't be good is because it's, it's almost impossible to cook well for that many people at one time. I've mentioned this before. I think the country that has the best food in the world, and this is very debatable. Some say it's Japan. Some say it's France. I'm going to tell you that it's Spain. And one thing you go and you notice about Spain is that um, a lot of the restaurants are really small, really, really small. And they take the craftsmanship of each dish very carefully. It is hard to exercise that level of craftsmanship over you know, a huge um, you know, amount of food you have to deliver. And so there's quality in the UFC because they have obviously the, the talent. But in terms of like the creative potential, it is profoundly underutilized. It, there's plenty there. That's least of my concerns. I was, I was really hoping you would rip the bra cup thing a bit more, mainly because I've heard this before. And that's because the person who sent this is my father. And he said it to me and we argued about it for about an hour. What the heck? Oh, really? What yeah. did you say? I said, I'm like, they probably have some type of protection within the sports bras and stuff that they wear. I'm like, but they don't. Have oh, the bra that. itself. I don't believe that yeah. they do. I'm like, I'm like, there's gotta be something, some kind of protection there. I'm like, but I don't think they're wearing actual cups. <laughs> I think that they wear, <laughs> again, I mean, I, I don't know, but my, my hunch is if you ever looked at like, you know, I've seen my wife's athletic gear that she wears. Right. And mm-hmm. it's obviously form fitting and it's designed to be not really comfortable, but to, you know, I'm going to sort of talk about this delicately to keep everything where it's supposed to be Cobb. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Yeah. Right, to keep everything from uh, from um, splashing around or so, something like that. <laughs> uh, so they so that would mean there's extra fabric and stuff. But I mean, I would imagine if you get hit there, it's going to hurt. It's just it's not really a target of opportunity. They'd rather punch you in the jaw or the stomach. Your dad is a troll. Yes, yes. <laughs> this is what I deal with whenever I watch. By the way, yeah, I'm the roommate who commandeers the living room TV, and this is what I deal with all day trying to watch fights. Yes. Are these little questions? The other big one I get all the time is like, "How is this guy a Hall of Famer if he's ten and seven? I'm like, "It's different, Dad. They don't they don't pad their record with like twenty wins, which I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm just like they don't do that, so right. they tend to get thrown into the deep end of the pool pretty quick in the sport. So yeah, because he <laughs> fought he fought he fought seven orcs. And three yeah. <laughs> wizards, you know? Yeah. So I get a lot of that all throughout. But yeah, welcome to my life now. <laughs> all right. Let's, let's go on to the next one. Poor five or. Uh, this is in reference to uh, your rant, supposedly, yesterday. Uh, this comes from Kay, who says, uh, Hey, Luke, sorry to hear you have to clarify yourself to whomever, but the passion for the fight game remains the same. I've never listened to a show thinking that you were speaking from a pedestal, but that you were just trying to improve the condition. Thanks. Yeah, I hope. That's the, that's the, that's it. Just, you know, when you, when you have a show like this or, you know, any kind of podcast or when you write a column or whatever, I mean, partly you're trying to get a point across that maybe you believe in and hopefully you've done the requisite research and understanding to make that a point worth taking seriously and, um, and trying to imagine a better world, right? Uh, better sport, better condition, better, better policy, whatever it is. The other part is like when you, when you do a show though, in particular, like when people are listening to you for a broadcast, I feel like one of the things you need to do is you need to like think about if I was a listener, what kind of show would I want to listen to? And I don't know that I'm faithfully executing on that vision, but I think the shorthand way of, for answering this is I'm trying, if I was a fan, I would want a show where I could listen 
and I could not get all the opinions I need or something because I'm never going to be that. No one person is, but cover topics of significance, uh, you know, be unique, but just be a show that you would want to listen to. And I try to do a show where if I was listening, I would want to learn something. I, again, I don't know that I am faithfully executing that vision, but that's what I'm trying to do. Trying to do a show where you can learn something. That's why we have guests on who talk about technique. It's why I do on occasion. It's why we have guys on who are college professors talking about marginal revenue product. Because when you have these conversations about a fight, about a court battle, you need to understand what's happening here. You have to be informed. I mean, this is sort of my whole point yesterday. You know, you can't be an expert in everything. You can just pick one or two things in life and you can really just drill down on that. And hopefully you can learn a lot. And, and I don't know if I'm an expert in MMA, uh, which is to say the wider sport. So like who the players are, how does the sport operate? What are the rules? What are techniques that are used? How does media work? You know, sort of playing all the levels. I've tried to develop an expertise around that. But at the same time, I'm learning all the time too. It's like, don't you want to listen to a show where you can be more informed about these things. I mean, people always ask me, why don't you read fiction books? And I don't really have a good answer because there really is no good answer for saying I don't read fiction. I mean, these are some of the most important works that mankind can create. But my answer is always the same, which is I find life so, our actual real world so interesting, I cannot get enough information to unpack how it works. And I sort of try to impart that here, uh, again, to varying degrees of success, of course. But that's sort of, that's the mission. That's the objective. That's the aim. That's the North Star. And, and yeah, I mean, that's, it, I've never understood people who just never wanted to be literate. How do you have a conversation? <laughs> I mean, you can't be literate about everything, but you'd be surprised how many things you can be literate about if you just try. Talking to the biggest names in pro wrestling. WWE Hall of Famer Edge. I had to start with Randy. I knew that coming back, having this cherry of a story dropped in his lap, that Randy would step up. He just needed something to be able to sink his teeth into. But then the next night after the Rumble, when I heard people screaming, I was like, oh my God. This feels like old school NWA Dusty Rhodes. Like, this is what I was hoping for. I was like, man, this is going to be so much fun. Busted open. Monday through Saturday, 9 to noon Eastern. Okay, uh, let's do this. So, who did Sean O'Malley speak to, Cobb? I actually don't know who he spoke to. Uh, Food Truck Diaries with Brendan Schaub. Food Truck Diaries. Okay. So, shouts to Brendan Schaub, a good friend of mine and the show. He was hosting Sean O'Malley and Food Truck Diaries. You know, it's funny. I started. I didn't get that far along. And during the course of this, they began to talk about money, the Reebok deal, you know, what fighters are entitled to. And Sean made what I would call something of a, I guess it's not surprising, but still kind of surprising, startling revelation about how much money he has made from Reebok royalties. Now, understand, this is not, you know, money for wearing a fight kit into the, uh, arena either before or after the pandemic it's got nothing to do with that that's pay that comes out you know it's sort of a uh, uh, timely organized predictable fashion right you know what you're going to make because it's all sort of formulated based on are you in a title fight or not are you main event or not how many fights do you have in a zufa organization that sort of thing so you can always just know what you're going to get there this is from sales ostensibly either from his kit 
or T-shirts with his likeness on it or something along those lines, things outside of the money he would get for wearing the kit as a function of um, his fight night duties. Roll the audio. Do you have any say in, in the merch? Because I think, I think Rogue and I both wore your tie-dye shirt, the first Reebok tie-dye shirt. I got a uh, Royals or the, the royalty ro- royalty from the with a ten cents or some shit. If I read it right, which I think I did, and then I even sent it to my dad, I'm like, did I read this right? And he said yes. So unless we're both can't read, <laughs> they made over a million Reebok made over a million dollars on all my merch, and I got th- like three thousand dollars. I'm like, what? The no, you fuck? both can read. It's ridiculous. Well, I'm like, I thought I got 15%. Like, well, you get 15% of this, Gross and but of this, yep, and then yep. these guys get it, and then you get 50% of that. I'm like, holy shit, so you gotta fuck with me. And then they make all these sweet shirts on Reebok. I'm like, damn. I tell people, I'm like, don't buy that. Okay. He claimed he got three grand off a million dollars in sales. All right. Now, Yahoo reached out to Reebok, who said the following, quote, Royalties paid out on sales of co-branded UFC and Reebok merchandise are dictated by the contract between the individual fighter and the UFC, the brand said. Basically being like, um, <laughs> that's between you and the UFC, my guy. We got nothing to do with that. There are, this is, to me, like so emblematic of what I'm talking about. Right? Even if... I've said this a million times, dude. Look at how many different pieces of the pie that the fighters don't get a more complete share. And you could say maybe he doesn't deserve 50. Maybe you even want to say he deserves 80. It's his goddamn likeness. And by the way, the shirts are not that creative, okay? Whatever your view, first of all, they don't challenge the number. Now, they, they, they may not challenge the number not by virtue of they didn't want to challenge it because... It could be false, and they just don't, as a matter of policy, challenge it. But either way, they didn't challenge it. Let's assume for the moment that that's true, because I've not heard anybody else challenge it. No one's come out and said that that's wrong. We'll see what Dana has to say about it at some point. They don't get a lick of the TV money. They don't get one penny from the TV money. And I know what people say. They always say, well, how many people are tuning in for, you know, in, for Curtis Blades? How many people are tuning in for Austin Hubbard? Right. Maybe that it's true. There are a lot of fighters that don't have a level of popularity that gets, uh, you know, the audience to really respond in the way that marginal revenue product would respond in a way where you could measure, you know, Conor McGregor's influence. Okay. That, that, that's fair. I don't think it's a bad argument. But the problem is you need this many fighters to have a two or three or four or however long it ends up being, sometimes a six or seven hour long broadcast. And during the course of that broadcast, you have ads on the octagon and the network is selling ads between breaks, meaning you are using their labor to sell ads against, meaning they should probably get a cut of that. And what that percentage will be, I don't know. But if, I, if someone is using my labor to sell advertising, it's not crazy to think that some of that should get trickled down to them. Okay, but you say maybe not that. All right, fine. They, they shouldn't get TV money. Maybe you say they should get all the merch, right? Let's, 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 uh, let's get rid of the Reebok deal. 
<clears throat> right? Or whatever. Uh, let's change it in such a way where they can get you know nearly as much money as they had before. And uh, they get much greater royalties. And then you go and you look at it, and then you say, well, they're getting whatever. Let's assume what he's saying is true for just a moment. And again, we'll see what UFC ends up saying about this. But $3,000 for a million dollars worth of sales. You know, and understand, his shirts, the tie-dye ones that they had made, the T-shirts, and again, this is not the kit. That is one of the most popular selling items they've ever made. And he got a three grand check off that. It's like, dude, every time the UFC has an opportunity to offset low fighter pay, they don't take it. Like you could raise the fighter base pay, the stuff that gets reported to the commission. So your, your, your show and your win money and then your bonus money that comes via uh, a performance. You could raise that or not. You could cut them in on a TV deal or not. Or you could change the way you do merch and advertising. And they don't. At every single opportunity they have to allay these concerns and wash away the arguments, they just don't. And I, I know that I may sound contradictory here because I, I have said in the past, you know, as much as fighters complain about this, it doesn't really ever result in tangible damage to the UFC, which is true because these are concerns that are not new. They've been happening a long time. And look at the UFC. They're, okay, the pandemic has changed everything. But prior to the pandemic, they were in as good of a spot as they've maybe ever been. So if all this bad press means something, why doesn't it ever result in anything? Well, here's what I would say. To date, it hasn't really resulted in meaningful damage. But the problem is, every time a new generation of fighters comes around, they speak out more and more and more about it. And I don't know exactly what just speaking out does, but I'll say this. It's not a story that's ever going to go away. If there's one benefit to everyone sitting out, it's not that it results in the change in the short run for them, but they at least hand the baton off to the next guy. And so there's always somebody carrying that torch for low fighter pay. And, and today it's like a ton of people carrying the torch. It's hardly one or two fighters. It's a, it's a gigantic amount. I've often wondered this. Like, if you look at Bellator, they don't really hammer your sponsors, and they pay, based on court documents that we found, 46% of their revenue to fighters. Right? I mean, they're basically doing what they can. And if you're saying that the purses are low, they might be low, but, I mean, what, where, what else do you want the money to come from? You know, I mean, they're not... It's, it's not like you're looking around and you're saying... Uh, there could be money pulled out from somewhere. Now, I guess you could say on the TV deal, but they're owned by Viacom, so that's a little bit weird. I mean, there's still money that's transferred within entities, even under the same umbrella. You could say they're entitled to that, and I wouldn't really argue against it. But, you know, here are two scenarios where they get nearly 50% of revenue, and you get to keep all your sponsors. It's like, it's not a bad deal. You know, I'm not saying it's the best deal for everyone, but... You can't really look at Bellator and say, wow, at every turn, you guys aren't doing something to make fighter pay more equitable. And here with the UFC, I just, I, this was the thing when they came down with the Reebok deal, I just never understood. It was like, dude, if you're not putting the same amount of money back in that you're taking out, which clearly they didn't, you know this is just going to be bad press forever, right? 
Because it will, it will always not be the same. And they just went ahead and did it anyway, because obviously it must be lucrative for them, I, I, I gather. But the last sort of component here is I would just be, I'm going to go ahead, you know, a lot of times you guys know I kind of hedge my opinions. I'm always like, well, you know, I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, and this will only happen if, and the chances of that are slim, and, you know, there could be a lot of contingencies and blah, blah, blah. I'll just go ahead and say this. I will be shocked if UFC and Reebok agree to another deal. Of course, I'm not suggesting to you that it's impossible, but I'm going to go ahead and say I find it very improbable. It has been nothing but bad press for them, and their point might be valid. Like, dude, we don't, you know, we don't... uh we don't have anything to do with how those royalties are handed out. Well, I, I don't know what the conditions were under which they got signed. There is um, reports that the UFC brought in a lot of like favored sons, like Matt Hughes and other ones, telling Reebok this will be something that the fighters love. And that when this whole thing got announced and there was this mini rebellion that happened, that Reebok was caught off guard and they got bad info. How much of that is true? You know, you decide. But I just know this. It has been relentlessly bad press for them for nearly seven years. And I think they've probably had enough. <laughs> I think they've probably been like, you know what? We're good. Thanks. Time to go find another thing. Uh, they dropped CrossFit, too. I mean, maybe you don't want to drop CrossFit and UFC at the same time. If that's how you get most of your money, I don't know. Or that's how you do, those are your two major sponsor opportunities. But Jesus, dude, it has just been one steady stream of look at how cheap uh, they are and look at how bad the fighters are and who's culpable. It's probably more complicated than the situation allows us to examine. But the press has been relentlessly negative every single time. Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at LThomasNews and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.